How do you know if a ministry is corrupt or compromised? Here's how you know. Is the Word of God central to the ministry of that church? If it is, don't worry. If it's not, get out of there. How do you know a preacher or a teacher or maybe a book that you're reading written by a professed Christian? How do you know that this isn't corrupt like Israel was corrupt in Jesus' day? How much scripture does it quote? Does it take the word of God seriously? Does it interpret it in light of Christ and His coming? Seeing Christ as the central figure in scripture. Seeing the gospel as the central message of scripture. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Once again, we want to continue with our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11. I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning, beginning in verse 12, going through verse 21. The title of the message, Jesus, the Prophet, Priest, King. Picking up in verse 12, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark says, On the following day, when they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is God's holy and pure word. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord's help as we study this passage together. Our Father, we come before you this day. We come before your word with humility. We come before your word with rejoicing in our hearts. It is our desire that not only the young ones who have been baptized this morning would recognize Jesus as the true prophet, priest, and king of their lives, but Father, we pray for all of those here, adults and children alike, that we would all recognize Jesus for who he truly is, in his identity, fulfilling the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would open it to us by the enabling of your Holy Spirit to provide illumination that our hearts might be joined together in worship and also convicted, if necessary, by sin, that we might all behold the glory of our prophet, priest, king, Jesus. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. 
If you are a student of the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures alike, you will be able to connect the dots theologically that there were three significant offices in the Old Testament. I'm speaking about the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And if you are a reader and a student of the New Testament, you will very easily be able to connect the dots to see that Jesus himself is the final prophet, that Jesus himself is the final priest, and that Jesus himself is is the final king. Indeed, the whole ministry of Jesus reveals this to us, and perhaps none other than this particular passage, more more than perhaps any other passage in the Gospel of Mark, puts all three of these offices of Jesus on full display. We saw last week that as the newly anointed king, Jesus rides into town on a humble colt, that is, a donkey. And then we see in our present passage that the first thing Jesus does is he enters the workplace of the priests. As a matter of fact, last week we saw in verse 11 that after he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he looked around. Now as the text indicates, on that evening, that would have been Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus went back to Bethany to spend the night and he comes again on Monday morning back into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple, I believe, to do what he had planned to do in verse 11. That is to clear it out. What is Jesus doing in the temple? Jesus is taking full control. This priest king is taking full control of the temple and what does he do in the temple? He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he quotes the prophet Jeremiah and he preaches an expositional sermon on the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. He is our prophet. He is the one that predicted that this fig tree would never produce fruit again. He is the one that predicted that the temple would be destroyed and history bears out that prophecy was fulfilled. He is the priest, the high priest as the author of Hebrews says, who paves the way before the presence of our holy God so that we can have communion and fellowship with God our creator through our redeemer, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the king. He was raised from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling over your heart, ruling over your life, and ruling over the whole world, even at those times in which we cannot see his lordship very clearly. This is what the scriptures teach. Now, you may think this morning that the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple seem to be two random events. In fact, you may even be tempted to think that these are two random events that occurred in our life, in the life of our Lord, as he had two fits of rage, angrily cursing the fig tree, angrily walking into the temple as if Jesus was just having a bad day. But if you're more perceptive than that, you'll understand if you've been with us that Mark likes to use a literary device, and we've referred to it, because most scholars do, as a theological sandwich. And that is where Mark will take one event in the life of our Lord, and that will be the first piece of bread. And then he'll take another event in the life of our Lord, and that will be the second piece of bread. But in between, the passage in between is really the meat. The passage in between is really the theological point that Mark wants to get across. And what we find in our current passage is Jesus 
First of all, cursing the fig tree. That's the first piece of bread. We see the next morning that the fig tree was withered. Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. That's the bottom piece of bread. But in the middle, verses 15 through 19, is the meat. That is where Jesus goes in and clears the temple. And the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple interprets for us what the cursing of the fig tree means. It is the meat of the sandwich. And without digesting the meat, you can't understand the cursing of the fig tree. And vice versa, you can't understand the cleansing of the temple without understanding the cursing of the fig tree. And so that is where we turn our attention this morning. Now I need to point this out because I know many of you from time to time will ask me what commentaries I'm reading and you might purchase those same commentaries. Or maybe you have your own commentaries and you're reading up in the Gospel of Mark and undoubtedly you will have come across those animal-loving, liberal scholars who criticize Jesus for casting demons out of a man, for those demons to go into the herd of swine to be flung off the cliff and drowned. That is an evil thing, liberal scholars say, for Jesus to do. And these same animal-loving, liberal scholars turn into tree-hugging scholars when they come to our text this morning. And they say that Jesus should have not cursed that fig tree. In fact, Bertrand Russell accuses Jesus, and I quote, of vindictive fury, behavior not consistent with a righteous man, much less the Son of God. Or T.W. Manson says, and I quote, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. I trust that you're smart enough this morning to recognize that such talk is both foolishness and blasphemous. Christ had a point to everything that he did. Jesus is not losing his temple either on the tree or in the temple. He's not losing his temper. He is fulfilling prophecy. One of the earliest commentaries on the Gospel of Mark was written in the 5th century by a man named Victor of Antioch. And in that commentary, he refers to the episode of Jesus cursing the fig tree as a parable. And he tells us that it is a parable that is meant to signify a desire on Mark to let his readers see that the fulfillment of that fig tree being cursed reveals God's judgment on the unfruitful temple of Israel. And that temple of Israel is a symbol of perverted worship. That temple is a symbol of hypocrisy, a symbol of the nation from top to bottom. I often wonder how many of those liberal scholars criticizing Jesus' actions for casting the demons into the pigs earlier in Mark eat barbecue pork. I also wonder if these liberal scholars would think twice about removing a dead tree with limbs that place their house in jeopardy. And so these animal-loving, tree-hugging, Liberal scholars are hypocrites in and of themselves. This is the God-man, and we don't question what the God-man does. This is the holy Son of God. We are dealing with the household of God. We are dealing with significant matters of importance. The God-man sacrificed the demon-possessed pigs in order to put the man right with God. And here the God-man curses the tree because it was useless anyway, and Jesus makes it useful, better to be used as firewood if it's not going to produce figs. So Jesus curses the tree as a parable of the fate of ethnic Israel. 
And in this sense, the tree became very useful, useful to make Jesus' point. And the point is this, don't miss it, Israel as a nation failed to be a light to the nations. Israel as a nation was apostate. The design of the temple originally had the court of Gentiles, which was meant to keep Gentiles at bay from the holy sacrifices of God. But by the days of Jesus, they had perverted this so that they were turning away Gentiles. The court of Gentiles became a place of commerce for the Jews. It was impossible for a Gentile to worship God on the temple grounds. In fact, Jesus himself symbolized the temple, didn't he? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise again. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true temple to which all weary souls, both Jews and Gentiles, come to worship, pray, and sing praises. And that's who we've come to this morning, dearly beloved. We've come to Jesus, who is the true temple, to glorify him. And that is why this passage is so critically important. Do you realize that the two bookends of Jesus' ministry involved him clearing the temple twice? Once at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple and he makes a whip with cords and he chases out the money changers and those that sold. At the end of his ministry here in Mark 11, he doesn't make a whip of cords, but he purposely goes into the temple and he purposely chases out the money changers and the merchants. And so the story of the temple symbolizes Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. His action of walking into the temple, of interrupting its commerce, reflects the history of Israel's ongoing apostasy. And as I said earlier, Herod's temple, the one Jesus walks into, 40 years later would be destroyed by the Romans. That wasn't just a doing of the Romans, that was a doing of the hand of God in fulfillment of God's prophecy. And I also want to tell you why I'm on the topic of prophecy, that there has not been an attempt since the destruction of the temple to rebuild the temple. And if there ever is even an attempt to rebuild the temple, you can mark my words, it has not been sanctioned by God. It has not been approved by God. How do I know that? Because Christ is the true temple. Do you think that a physical temple is going to be better than the God-man who is the true temple? In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. And of course, you're also familiar with Paul's words in Ephesians 2, that... The members of the household of God are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the true temple. And it matters not what your religion might be. It matters not what your theological perspective may be. It matters not what your claims may be. If you've never entered the temple of Jesus Christ, you have not entered the arena of salvation and you are without hope. You are still full of sin. You must come to Christ. You must enter the temple by faith, turning from your sins. Not the physical temple, the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the trajectory of what Scripture clearly teaches. Now let's look at our text here this morning because in verses 12 through 21, I don't want you to think that Jesus' meekness and arriving on a donkey colt is a demonstration of weakness. No, this is the authoritative king who speaks with the authority of God's prophet and he performs the ultimate work of redemption. 
eventually. But he symbolizes that work by walking into the temple. As we look at our text this morning, there are really two summary points, and I want to call these the two actions of momentous proportions in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't Jesus angrily flying off the handle when he curses the fig tree. This isn't Jesus angrily losing his cool in the temple as he clears it. These are two actions of purposeful and momentous proportions. I would even go so far as to say that if you fail to understand this, perhaps you've failed to understand the whole reason Jesus came to begin with. So let's begin with the first action of momentous proportions, and that is Jesus cursing the tree. There are really two things that we see here in verses 12 through 14. 14, we see the prophecy foretold by Jesus, and then in verses 20 and 21, the prophecy fulfilled. Notice, first of all, the prophecy foretold. We know that Jesus spent Sunday night in Bethany. Verse 11 is clear about that. He had left Jerusalem and he went to Bethany. Well, now it's Monday morning. Notice your Bibles in verse 12. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany. This is Jesus heading back to Jerusalem. He's heading back to Jerusalem with the twelve, and the end of verse 12 says that he was hungry. That was the pattern of Jesus, to rise early in the morning before everyone else, to pray to his Father in quiet. No doubt that included fasting. Jesus had been up probably for several hours now, his fasting now complete, and he would need energy for his planned actions in the temple. Because he was going to be very aggressive and very physical, this was game day. Jesus was truly a man. When he was sleepy, he went to sleep like he did in the stern of the boat. When he was hungry, he ate. And here he is hungry. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How did Jesus become poor? Well, in the first instance, by becoming a man, by having human flesh, by experiencing every experience you experience except the experience of sin. He never experienced, but he did experience the temptation of sin. And here we see the true humanity of Jesus. He is hungry. Not only that, but we read in verse 13, notice your Bibles, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now sometimes Jesus had supernatural information revealed to his human consciousness. And we saw that last week before Jesus entered Jerusalem, he instinctively knew supernaturally that there was a cult and he sent two disciples to fetch that cult and told them to tell the owners that he would return it. That wasn't Jesus making plans and preparations beforehand. That was supernatural knowledge revealed to his human consciousness. But apparently here, Jesus is gathering information like any other human being. And there are times in Jesus' ministry where we see this because we affirm with the creeds that Jesus is truly God and truly man. So he goes to see if he could find any fruit on the tree. But as verse 13 says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Or, as the ESV says, seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season 
for figs. The important thing to understand is that this tree promised a lot from a distance. But, upon closer inspection, it lacked production. This tree, we could say, listen to this, was a tree of hypocrisy. It gave the appearance that it actually bore fruit. It was green, it had leaves, it had branches. But there was no fruit. Fig trees were common in ancient Palestine. Harvest, of course, was mid-August to mid-October. But before then, there were actually trees that would sprout buds. Those buds would not fully develop in the winter, but by March or April, which is the exact time in which this incident occurs, trees were capable of producing fig knops. They were referred to as pagem. And these pagem were not fully developed figs, but they were edible and people often did eat them, not wanting to wait until the harvest. And so the point is, is that if a tree, a fig tree had leaves, then it was expected that its branches were at least full of the pagem or the fig knops. But this tree was green with leaves. It only gave a good appearance of having the knops. It did not have the knops. And that's why Mark points out there wasn't the season of figs in verse 13. As if to say Jesus would have had no qualms with a fig tree that had no leaves and had no fruit. But this was a tree that had leaves and yet it had no fruit. And so what does Jesus do? He chooses to make a parable of this tree by utilizing it as a symbol Just as the prophets often did. Notice in verse 14 it says, And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark says the disciples heard what he said. This is similar to what the prophet Jeremiah said to Judah in Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Jesus is borrowing the imagery of Jeremiah as if to say Israel was just like they were in the days of Jeremiah. No spiritual fruit. And therefore God was going to curse them as a sign of his judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is used as a symbol of God's judgment even upon the nations, that is other sinners. Isaiah 34 says, that all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Or Jeremiah the prophet says, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages. Jeremiah says, like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved, referring to their idols. Even the prophet Joel speaks about the fig tree. He says, God lays waste his vine and splinters his fig tree and strips it completely bare of bark. Other places in Hosea the prophet chapter 2 and chapter 9, Micah the prophet reveal that this was a common figure of God's judgment. Anytime the nation of Israel or another nation was under judgment, the symbolism of a fig tree was used. And Jesus is actually clear about this, clearer than he is here, if you turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. 
Because in Luke chapter 13, our Lord gives a parable about a fig tree. What is he doing? He is expositing the Old Testament scriptures. And he creates this parable, Luke 13, verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Oh, isn't that interesting? Who might that man be? Well, that was Jesus who didn't find fruit on the fig tree. So this particular man, Jesus says, said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. Not, you can cut it down. That was the parable Jesus had given. And as we're going to see, Jesus is using this fig tree, we could say as an object lesson to speak of the destruction of Israel, the judgment of Israel, and the destruction of the temple in particular. His cursing of the tree is following, this is what you need to understand, please don't miss it, he's following in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. This was a hypocritical tree, wasn't it? Leaves but no fruit. A semblance of production with no true substance. And I want to tell you this morning that on a broader level, Jesus is addressing the issue of hypocrisy. Paul says in Romans 2.24 that the Jews blasphemed among the Gentiles the name of God because of their waywardness. And Paul is writing that to the church, quoting the Old Testament, as if to tell the church, We are not to be hypocrites. We are to be those who not just say something, but we do what we say. We don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk. And in fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus speaks about those that truly belong to the vine. Those who are truly in union with Christ will produce fruit. And Jesus even goes on to say those who do not produce fruit, those branches that do not produce fruit, although they are visible members of the church, they will be cut off eventually, cast aside, and burned in the fire. That was Israel. As a nation, they were being judged by God. This is seen, as I said, in the destruction of the temple 40 years later in A.D. 70 by the Romans. Because as we're going to see in this text, in the physical temple on this very day that Jesus curses the fig tree, we see that the temple was a place of performance, but no production, no real spiritual fruit. Israel promised salvation, but they didn't prove it because they lived lives of hypocrisy. Seen in the temple, the hustle and the bustle of temple activities, there was no sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, but only a stench in God's nostrils. The religious activity of the temple grounds were like leaves. From a distance, everything appeared beautiful. The glistening, polished marble of the temple, the gold-plated crowns on top of those pillars, glistening in the sun, appeared to be a city on a hill, and what Jesus says is, that is deception. On closer inspection, Israel is apostate. Israel will be judged. And in cursing that tree, 
Jesus, make no mistake about it, is foretelling the downfall of Israel. This is the vineyard of the Lord that will be destroyed. Very similar, by the way, regarding what Isaiah told the people of his day. They were also apostate. And Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, all inhabitants of Jerusalem, all men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall it shall be trampled down I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness but behold an outcry that is exactly how Jesus viewed Israel of his day. Borrowing the language of the Old Testament prophets, borrowing the imagery of a vineyard, you can think of grapes and a vineyard, or you can think of the other imagery in the Old Testament of a fig tree that is meant to bear fruit. The imagery is essentially the same. What did Jesus say? He said to the religious leaders, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And I think the apostles understood what Jesus was saying because the end of verse 14 says, and his disciples heard it. That is to say, they heard Jesus curse that tree. And it raised a little flag in their minds. Skip with me to verse 20. The next morning, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. In verse 21, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The prophecy foretold in verses 12 through 14 now takes us to the prophecy fulfilled in verses 20 and 21. What occurs before this incident of seeing the withering of the tree is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. We're skipping ahead. And verse 20, when it says they pass by in the morning, this is now Tuesday morning after Jesus has cleansed the temple. The disciples along with Jesus are walking back into Jerusalem and they're a shock. Probably the night before when they went home, they passed that same tree, but it was too dark to tell. Now in the morning with the light of the day, Peter says, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus' prophecy. What he foretold has now been fulfilled. What was the prophecy back in verse 14? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Let me just say this. That is still true today. What sort of fruit is ethnic Israel producing for the glory of God today? The answer is none. They were used by God, Israel was. They were chosen by God in the Old Testament to be a vehicle in which the Messiah would come to the world to save all sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. 
But now that Christ, the true Israel, has come, Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Galatians 6.15 The church, composed of Jews and Gentiles who have come to the true temple in faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, are the true Israel of God. What does Paul say in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so the first lesson of the fig tree applies to Israel. She was cursed. She was used up. Her usefulness no longer remained. So Jesus curses the tree to symbolize the uselessness of Israel. And I understand my words this morning are harsh. And that is because the words of Jesus are harsh. I don't think that you can understand the righteous anger of our Lord. When he cursed this tree, the disciples no doubt were fearful. He would have sort of said it under his breath, but the disciples would have heard it. They would have understood Jesus is not merely having a bad day. This is Jesus, righteous Jesus, defending the purpose of God's people from before the foundation of the world, that they would be a light to the nations, and Israel had failed to do that. The Messiah had come in fulfillment of prophecy, and so now this tree would wither away. But I want to remind you what I said about John 15. Jesus says that we as his people are in union with Jesus who is the vine and we are the branches. There are still people part of the New Testament church, just like the Jewish church in the Old Testament. There are people part of the New Testament church today who are visible members, who have been baptized, who have joined the church who come each Lord's Day and read their Bible and pray and have a veneer of religiosity and their hearts are devoid of Christ. Their bodies are not the temple of the Holy Spirit. They have desecrated their bodies, sinning in thought, word, and deed. They have not repented of their sins. They have not trusted in Christ alone as their Savior. And although they are part of the visible church, they are not part of the invisible church. And dearly beloved, do not leave the first point without examining your own heart. This is not merely a lesson regarding the Jewish Old Testament church. This is a message regarding the New Testament church as well. Because throughout all of time, there have always been sheep and goats. Throughout all of time, there has always been tares and wheat. There have been believers and non-believers, possessors of Christ and mere professors of Christ. Jesus would say, there will be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Paul is clear in Galatians chapter 5 that true Christians Bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Those are character qualities. Those are general categories that mark the life of a true believer. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. True Christians are not perfect. And in fact, if you're here this morning, I want you to understand that if you are in the midst of a severe sin, perhaps a sin that no one else knows about, there is enough grace and mercy to forgive you in the gospel if you repent of it. Humbly coming 
before God, not trying to cover it up with the veneer of religiosity, with the green leaves, but with no fruit. And that's important to say because now the clearing of the temple helps us see more clearly why God has done away with Israel. We move from the first action of momentous proportions, Jesus cursing the tree, now number two, to Jesus, where we see Jesus, he clears the temple. First he curses the tree, now he clears the temple in verses 15 through 19. And there are several prominent features I want you to note. First of all, I want you to note with me in the clearing of the temple what I want to call the evacuation of the temple. Verses 15 and 16. Now remember, we already skipped ahead to verses 20 and 21 the next day. But in reality, the chronology is that after Jesus curses the fig tree in verses 12 through 14, he enters Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple in verses 15 through 19. And as verse 15 says, he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. He goes straight to the temple. What did he do in verse 11 when he entered town? Skip back to it. He entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I really believe that in verse 11, Jesus is planning what he's going to do the next morning. And that is why he curses the fig tree. He understands that is a symbol of Israel. He had already planned to go into the temple and to clear it from what he knew was taking place there. Now you need to understand a little bit about temple history. The temple that Jesus walks into is the third temple in Israel's history. This is a vast, vast complex. It would have been on this morning filled with Thousands of would-be worshippers. Israel's religious life on the surface, teeming with energy. But the temple really became the epicenter of false worship. That's the reality. For hundreds of years, worship had done, been done on this plot of ground. You remember back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, that it was David who was the architect of the first temple. Prior to that, there was a mobile temple called the Tabernacle, and it sort of moved around from place to place, places like Shiloh and other places. It was even stolen by the Philistines, if you remember. But it was David who was the architect of the temple, and he chose the plot of ground known as Mount Moriah. That is where Abraham was willing to obey God to offer up Isaac, his only son, before God stopped him. That was a test for Abraham. David was the architect of the temple, but it was Solomon who constructed it. And so the first temple was known as Solomon's temple. But it wasn't long before the glory of the Lord departed. Ichabod was written upon the doors of the temple effectively, and in 586 B.C., Babylon came and invaded Jerusalem and captives were taken away in exile to Babylon. This holy and beautiful house where the fathers praised God, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 11, has been burned by fire and all its pleasant places have become ruins. The temple was gone. Seventy years in exile, 
Some exiles returned. They returned with a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And after a period of time, they rebuilt the temple. It wasn't as ornate. It wasn't as large. And we know that from the book of Ezra because while all the young people thought it was a wonderful thing, they had never seen a temple. All the older people wept because it wasn't even close to its former glory. That second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, wasn't destroyed entirely, but it was desecrated during the intertestamental period before the days of Christ by Antiochus Epiphanes. And that led to the year 20 BC when Herod the Great, wanting to make a name for himself, wanting to have a good relationship with the Jews, was actually the one that repaired and restored Zerubbabel's temple to create a bigger and more ornate and larger temple than than ever before. And that's why we call it Herod's Temple. In fact, construction on that temple continued all the way up to A.D. 64. Just a few years before it was destroyed yet again. Do you get the picture that the physical temple was not the end all of the end all in God's mind? Christ is the true temple. This was the history of Israel. They couldn't even maintain the temple precincts without God judging them. And by Jesus' day, this former holy ground, a holy ground for thousands, really a thousand years or so, Jesus walked in and as verse 15 says, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I mean, if you remember back in the Old Testament, Solomon He prayed the dedicatory prayer for the temple. And on that day, we read about it. It was so filled with the fire of God's glory descending on the temple that the priests couldn't even enter it to do their job. They bowed, prostrate on the stone court and praised God and watched as His glory entered it and they didn't dare to enter it themselves. 750 years before the days of Christ, the death of Uzziah, the king, Isaiah mourns. He's caught in a vision. He sees the sovereign Lord enthroned, majestic, the train of his robe filling the temple, the seraphim crying out, the seraphim covering their face with one set of wings, covering their feet with another set of their wings, chanting back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. You remember on that occasion that the foundations of the temple shook and the smoke of God filled the sanctuary. And that is when Isaiah declared, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was the same area that Jesus walks into in verse 15 that he evacuates. No longer a place of glory, no longer a place of prayer, no longer a place of visions, no longer a sense of reverence. Informal, disrespectful people. Outwardly, of course, the temple was beautiful. Inwardly, it was a horrible mess. Busy with the wrong kind of business. 
Commercialism replaced devotion to God. Ritualism replaced reverence to God. Extortion for money replaced the exposition of God's word. Jesus enters here the court of Gentiles, the first major entry point to the temple. This would have been an open air sort of quad, a huge area, 500 yards in length, 325 yards wide, some 35 acres. Josephus says the columns of the temple were 35 feet high. They were made of one block of marble so thick that it took three men to wrap their arms around it to encircle one column, capped with Corinthian caps made of gold, Solomon's portico, the royal porch, with a ceiling of ornament wood carvings. Beautiful temple. With that court, filled with that commerce, Jesus walks in. He sees the merchants who sold pigeons, as verse 15 says. He would have also seen sheep and oxen. He would have seen the tables of the money changers, the money changers themselves, all surrounded by these beautiful porticos, this large space. The money changers were there, of course, to exchange foreign currency into the Tyrian shekel. And some believe into some form of a, maybe a Hebrew shekel because the Old Testament required you paid your temple tax at the celebration of Passover and it had to be in the right currency. That much was biblical. But the Sadducees, which oversaw this religious racketeering they charged exorbitant rates for their services so that they could line their pockets and line the temple treasury with money and they said they were doing the work of the Lord. The high priest was in charge of all of this. Annas himself had been deposed. He had been removed. He was a high priest in exile, sort of like a, I guess you could say a mafia boss in prison because he was still calling the shots, but it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, an equally wicked man who together with his father-in-law, Annas, sold franchises to the merchants at ridiculously high prices and then they skimmed a percentage of the money from the profits that the vendors made. What did these merchants sell? Well, they sold livestock. Livestock that they kept in cages. Birds would have been in cages. Oxen, sheep would have been in pens or stalls. There were also vendors that sold wine, vendors that sold salt, because the Old Testament required that if you're going to offer a sacrifice to God, particularly at the Passover, that wine and salt were there. This was probably the cheapest possible wine at the highest and most expensive price. Salt, that was expensive as well. Josephus said that in AD 66 at the Passover, there were 255,000 lambs sacrificed. And scholars estimate that that means if there was one lamb sacrificed for every 10 people or every household, it would mean that over 2.5 million people were in Jerusalem during Passover. And I can guarantee that amount of people were there when Jesus was there because pilgrims were traveling from afar. People that perhaps wouldn't normally go were coming to Jerusalem. So imagine what Jesus walked into, the sights. People scurrying around, animals everywhere, people pushing and shoving. The sounds, bleeding sheep, cooing doves, bawling of livestock, haggling of merchants. The smells, animal food, animal deposit, animals in general. I mean, this was a bazaar. 
This wasn't a place of worship. This was a flea market. This was a county fair and a stock exchange all wrapped up into one. The site should have been prostrate worshipers and teachers of the word. The sound should have been praising psalms and pleading prayers and preaching prophets. The smells should have been burning incense and the fresh God-created outdoor air, but it wasn't. Beyond the court of Gentiles, there was corruption as well. Beyond the court of Gentiles was what is referred to as the court of women. That was the second major section of the temple. You had to uh, ascend some 14 steps to get up to the court of women. Men were allowed in that court, Jewish males who were circumcised. uh, But the women weren't allowed beyond it. That's why it was called the court of women. And then you would ascend some 15 more steps up beyond that to the court of Israel. And only Jewish males that were circumcised and priests were allowed in that section. And then 12 more steps up to the court of priests where only the priests were allowed. That is where the Holy of Holies was contained in the holy place. It was really a freestanding structure, 150 yards long by 100 yards wide, all the way at the top of the temple. By the way, at the end of the court of the Gentiles was a railing or a wall about four and a half feet high that said this in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. In other words, capital punishment for any Gentile that goes beyond the court of Gentiles. But here's the point. The point is this. The court of Gentiles was there for guess who? The Gentiles, not the Jews. It was there for the Gentiles. And on this day, as with Isaiah's vision 750 years earlier, it is the bright light of the Son of God and the glory of His fury-filled rage that enters the temple. Verse 15, He began to drive out those who bought in the temple and those who sold. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. I mean, Jesus created a scene that nobody could forget. He chases away the merchants and their customers right in the middle of them making a deal. He doesn't even let them finish the transaction and he yells to them to get out. He flips over the tables of various currency. You would have seen coins rolling on the stone cobbled court Coins clinging as Jesus chases after them. And he literally yanks out from underneath the money changers their own seats. Who would have the goal to do that? This isn't some prank. This is Jesus violently walking over and ripping the seats out from underneath them. This is holy violence. This is a fit of righteous rage. This is a demonstration of divine wrath, a holy defense of the temple grounds. This is Jesus purifying the perverted temple. This is Jesus exposing the money-crazed merchants. This is Jesus revealing the fiery glory of God. Does that remind you of Psalm 69 and verse 9, which reads for zeal, For your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That is Jesus. He's evacuating the temple. And notice verse 16. He's not done. It goes on to say, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
(laughs) effectively evicting the merchants as the landlord of the temple grounds. Now in verse 16, he's stopping people from using the court of Gentiles as a cut through to the other side of the city. Because the court was regularly used as a convenient thoroughfare for people to get from point A in the city to point B. Instead of walking around the huge temple, they cut right through informally, disrespectfully, disrupting the prayers of Gentiles, the devotion of Gentiles, the teaching of the Levites. The only place a Gentile proselyte could go, someone who believed in Yahweh, the only place he or she could go to worship God was in this court. This isn't a place of worship. It's a place of commerce, distraction, busyness, informality. And Jesus, by his actions, listen to this, he's telling everyone there, this temple is not to be a place of convenience. It is to be a place of reverence. And in fact, we often criticize the Mishnah, which was an interpretation of a proper understanding of the Old Testament. This perhaps is one place where Jesus was fully in agreement with the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah actually said, do not even walk on temple grounds in your sandals. Do not walk on temple grounds with your wallet. This is not a place for commerce. Do not walk with your staff. You're not making a journey through the temple. This is a place of destination. And more importantly, you're not allowed to cut through the temple just to get to a more convenient place in the city. I think Jesus agreed with the Mishnah. Maybe the only place he agreed with it. I mean, if you turn with me over to John chapter 2, the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry... It says that he made a whip and he chased out people. And in verse 17, it says his disciples remembered that it was written. Here's Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Will consume me. Literally in the Greek, eat me up. It was eating Jesus up that this unrighteous, hypocritical perverting of the temple taking place in the Hebrew consume me means burned up in a flame we could say that Jesus was filled with the fiery flame of holy fury a holy zeal a masculine aggression and in your face ministry in the midst of the temple you say well I thought Jesus was gentle and lowly of heart he is Matthew eleven twenty nine says He is gentle and lowly of heart. Those are the words of Christ. But this does not negate his masculinity. He was a man. His meekness and his kindness was not weakness and sissiness. He was very clear that the purpose of the temple and the purpose of Israel was to glorify God and the people were not doing it. This is not Jesus losing his cool. Understand that. This is strength under control. This is firmness without sin. And how do we know that? Because Jesus does his favorite activity that he ever did when he walked this earth. As he is evacuating the temple and clearing it, he's doing it for a purpose. He's clearing it to get people ready so that they're attentive to his preaching of the word. 
As he clears the temple, we move from the evacuation of the temple now to the exposition in the temple. Verses 17 and 18. And notice verse 17. And Mark says he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? I mean, this isn't Jesus winging a sermon. Uh, This is Jesus saying, It is written in the word of God. It is written in the scroll of Isaiah. It is written in the scroll of Jeremiah. Do you not know the word of God? Do you not have an ear to the word of God? Do you think you can come to the temple and just not listen and check out? Jesus says, the whole reason I'm clearing this place is because of my zeal for the glory of God, my zeal for the word of God, my desire for you to hear the word of God, because apart from hearing the word of God, there is no salvation. This is gentle and lowly Jesus. This is loving Jesus condescending to the people, opening up the word of God, expositing scripture, specifically Isaiah 56 and verse 7, where it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This isn't to be a place of commerce. It's to be a place of devotion, a house of prayer. Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the one You choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Nothing holy was taking place this day. If you turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 8, it's very, very interesting in the Old Testament that Solomon, when he prayed in dedication For the temple, he said these words, verse 41, we'll pick up there. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand, of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this house. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and to do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon says, God, hear the prayers of the foreigner. Hear the prayers of the Gentiles who come to the court of Gentiles. I know that's your heart. It's exactly what the Ethiopian eunuch was doing, that Gentile proselyte. He worked in the court of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians. He went into the court of Gentiles to worship God, and that's when he ran into Philip on his journey back. But this wasn't a place of prayer, was it? Jesus says, Isaiah says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But what are you doing? Notice the end of it. But you have made it a den of robbers. Wow. Now he's quoting from Jeremiah the prophet. Expositing Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where Jeremiah says that your eyes may be opened day and night to this house, the place of which you have said that you will listen to the prayers of those who lift it up. That's 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 29. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 11. Jeremiah says, has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. It's exactly what had happened. People consume with money. That still marks the church today, doesn't it? Health, wealth, prosperity. Jesus 
is saying, you know what? Jeremiah preached a similar sermon in his temple discourse, and I'm going to preach a sermon today. You have made the temple a den of robbers. You're all guilty. You're all guilty. Jeremiah says to the people, you've oppressed the foreigners. You've stolen from them. What is happening here? They're oppressing the foreigners. The Gentiles can't get in to pray. They're stealing people's money. And yet in all of that, they're continuing to offer sacrifices as a veneer of religion. Jesus says you're nothing more than a den of robbers. This was an allusion to the rocky caves of the Judean hills which surrounded Jerusalem where thieves and robbers assembled and divvied up their loot. Jesus is saying you're using the temple as a cave to hide what you're doing and to line your pockets. Complete corruption. And the point of all of this which is most heartbreaking, is that you were called as a nation to be a light to the Gentiles and they can't even get into the temple. And someone in the crowd would say, well, we believe the Messiah is going to come, but you're not him. Because when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear the temple of Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, no, I didn't come to clear the temple of Gentiles. I have come to clear the temple for Gentiles. I've come to welcome them, all sinners. Jesus is saying there's a new sheriff in town. Jesus arrived on a cult as a king. And now as a priest king and a prophet, he roars forth God's word like a lion. He takes control of the temple grounds because instead of God being called out to in prayer, the merchants are calling for customers. Instead of people singing praises, they're buying and selling. And so Jesus says, you have reduced this place, turned it on its head, and made it exactly what it never was meant to be. And I hope you're listening this morning because Jesus is still prophet, priest, and king. The church is his. It's not ours. The church is not a business. And therefore, it is the business of King Jesus that he order it properly. As a matter of fact, when Jesus appears to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, he appears as a priest. We read, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John says, and turning on it, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like... The sun shining in full strength. The lampstands represent the churches. The stars represent, obviously, the pastors. And this is Jesus, the high priest. And what does he write? John. He says, here's the message of Christ to the church. Seven messages to seven churches, all of which say, repent or God's heavy hand of judgment is coming. Priest Jesus still seeks spiritual fruit and pure worship, not the leaves of outward success with no eternally lasting fruit 
As God said of Israel in Hosea 9.16, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. That was a prophecy Jesus made as well that was fulfilled symbolically in the fig tree. And now Jesus is saying, I'm clearing the temple, evacuating the temple because the temple is going to be destroyed just like that fig tree was cursed. That is the message that Jesus is conveying. And how can this be a sacred place for Gentiles to worship when they can't even get in? You see what Jesus has done in his sermon? He has exposed the religious leaders. They are the ones that made it a den of robbers. And he has done so by pointing to the word of God. He's preached from Isaiah. He's preached from Jeremiah. They are convicted because they're convicted by the word of God. And that's why we read in verse 18. Notice your Bibles that the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They heard the sermon. And they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Fearful of what? Well, the fact that he was a threat to them religiously, politically, and economically. Religiously, because he was exposing their hypocrisy, threatening their prestige. Politically, because they were in cahoots with Rome and they could lose their position with Rome if there was a revolution and an uprising by the Jews. Economically, because he was a threat to their money. Their exploitation of the nation. You get the sense, don't you, I hope, by this point, Jesus is upsetting the status quo. There's a remnant of people that are singing his hallelujahs, but it's not the vast majority of people. At this point, everyone is terrified, including the pilgrims that followed him in there. The religious leaders are seeking a way to destroy him. But I want to ask you this. How many preachers, churches, and Christians are willing to upset the status quo? That was the ministry of Jesus. Today, the church is full of religious racketeering. The church is a business. The church is a place where you can find a life coach and build your self-esteem. The church is a place where you can come and someone can tell you, you're a good little boy, you're a good little girl. God loves you and has a great plan and purpose for your life. That wasn't the ministry of Jesus. He came and he preached the truth. And his clearing of the temple involved an evacuation of the temple, an exposition in the temple, but now notice the escape from the temple, verse 19. Jesus has no choice. It says, when evening came, they went out of the city. Who was they? Jesus and the apostles. Jesus is operating according to the timetable of his father, right? He will not die one moment before, not one moment after. He's just stirred up the religious leaders on purpose. And I'm sure it was fun doing it. But now he realizes, I better get out of here. Because I'm operating according to my father's timetable. He leaves. They go back to Bethany to spend the night before coming back the next day, and remember what happens the next day, verses 20 and 21, walking back into Jerusalem and they see the fig tree, they see it's all withered, Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled, and now the apostles who heard that cursing and they saw the fulfillment make the connection between the tree and the temple. The tree and the temple are the same. They represent Israel. God is judging Israel. Israel is apostate. 
Now, what do we learn from this? You say, well, I understand, I get it. I understand the fact that Israel failed. But where's the hope? Well, the hope is in this. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true temple. You come to Jesus. The Bible is not about one particular ethnic people that stands above the rest. The Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is the true temple, who has come to save Jews and Gentiles. He's come to save all sinners. He's come to save the vilest of sinners. And you say, well, I'm the chief of sinners. That's a great thing to admit because Paul admitted he was the chief of sinners. And God can save you too. Salvation is only by faith and repentance. You've got to come to Christ. But this passage teaches us, number one, that Jesus insists on reverence and worship. Do you get that from the text? How many churches do you walk in today and it's the informal, disrespectful, blasphemous, light context? Is that really how God wants his church to be? Or is this a holy sanctuary? Where the people of God come attentively and they come to worship God in spirit and in truth. Secondly, I think that Jesus insists to us from this passage that all ministry must be operated with integrity. As I said, there's a lot of religious racketeering going on. How do you know if a ministry is corrupt or compromised? Here's how you know. Is the word of God central to the ministry of that church? If it is, don't worry. If it's not, get out of there. How do you know a preacher or a teacher or maybe a book that you're reading written by a professed Christian? How do you know that this isn't corrupt like Israel was corrupt in Jesus' day? How much scripture does it quote? Does it take the word of God seriously? Does it interpret it in light of Christ and his coming? Seeing Christ as the central figure in scripture. Seeing the gospel as the central message of scripture. Third, I think Jesus insists to us from this passage that we're to spread the gospel to the nations, right? The temple is to be a house of prayer for the nations. We ought to welcome sinners into the church. We welcome them. We urge them. We invite them. We have relationships with them. We have relationships with unbelievers. We witness to them when we can, how we can, according to our gifts, according to our opportunities. But we live our life as we live it Even if it's hypocritical to some point, people will see the inconsistencies of our life, but we keep our message the same and we try to live faithfully to God and we seek to obey His law and we know that if we're truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, He will enable us to be a light to the nations, to be salt on a hill. The church is not to be a bunch of pious, separated, secluded Christians who dress right, think right, do the right things, and avoid the rest of the world. That simply is not Christianity. That's called pietism. And it is unbiblical. And yet appears religious. That's exactly what the Jews were doing. Fourth, I think Jesus insists to us in this passage something very important, and that is this. Theologically, there is only one people of God. And I should say practically as well. It's not just true theologically. But it's important to recognize theologically that there's one people of God, not two people of God. The tree of Israel has been cursed. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 11? He tells us that the wild olive branches, the Gentiles, have been grafted in. 
Christ is the true temple and Jews and Gentiles are welcome into every part of it because when Jews and Gentiles are welcomed to Christ. But there's a warning that the Bible gives to us regarding the fact that there is this one people of God. After Paul explains to us that dead branches were cut off Israel and wild olive branches were grafted in, we read these words. Paul says to the church, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through your faith. Do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness but also the severity of God. And also, in other words, note the love of God but also the justice of God. The mercy of God but also the grace of God. Where is that? That is found in the visible of church visible church there is a demonstration of his mercy and his grace because God allows the children of believing parents to become members of the visible church and yet Paul says here don't become arrogant not everyone who is part of the visible church is a true believer a true child of God this is the way that it's always been there's one people of God The visible church represents the one people of God, but there's also within the visible church the invisible church, the true people of God. Perhaps a fifth thing to point out. Jesus insists in this passage that there be praise from our children. I didn't point it out to you, but in Matthew's gospel, in his account of this same incident, in Matthew chapter 21, something very interesting occurs in the temple. It tells us in verse 14 of Matthew 21 that the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. So he's not just preaching sermons and clearing the way, he's healing people. And then verse 15 says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and note this, the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, the son of David, the religious leaders were indignant. This isn't a place for children. Quit saying Hosanna, the son of David. What were these children doing? They were simply mimicking what their parents had done the day before as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. And they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And these children, to whatever knowledge they had, we don't know what knowledge they had, but they were mimicking their parents. They were being the best worshipers of God as they could. And such is still true today. Children are to worship God and praise God and pray to God. We are to teach our children to do that. We are to cultivate the heart of praise in our children that they might grow not to be hypocrites but pure worshipers of God. And even today as we have baptized the children that stood before the church, we're to pray for them and we are to support them and we are to encourage their parents because it is a community effort in the raising of children within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As parents, they have their own particular responsibility for their children, but the church collectively has that responsibility, particularly if you don't have any children of your own. 
There is a responsibility to make the children of the church your children, to serve them and to minister to them. There was always a place for children when Jesus was around. There was always a place for children when worship was going on. And even as Jesus preaches, there are children singing his praises in the temple. And there's a last thing that I want to share with you that I think Jesus insists of us from this passage. And it's very simple. Jesus insists that we recognize him as a high priest. He recognizes that we recognize him as the only one we can put hope and trust in. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 14 says, this great high priest has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So that this goes back to what I said earlier. Jesus saves the vilest of sinners. There is no sin that anybody has committed in this room today that is unforgivable. Except the rejection of the gospel. Regardless of what your sin is, you must bring it to Jesus. You must confess that sin. You must turn from that sin. You must plead with God for his mercy and for his grace. This is a high priest that welcomes you to come. And when you do not come before this high priest confessing your sins, your life will not go well. The discipline of the Lord will enter in. The trials of life will become an instrument the Lord uses to humble you. So it's best to come and confess your sin to Jesus, the high priest. Israel failed, but the church will not fail. We proclaim the gospel. We urge sinners to come to Christ. We welcome sinners to God's house. And we make it clear that this is his house. And while we're in his house, we play by his rules. Because he alone is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture full of truth, really too much truth to uncover in such a short period of time. And yet, we believe that by the operation of your Holy Spirit, you have given to us enough truth for us to feed upon. But Father, we pray you would help us not feed upon it in vain. Help us to learn the lessons of Jesus cursing the fig tree, of Jesus clearing the temple. May we have eyes of faith to see Jesus in all of his glory. Be true repenters. Father, that you might dwell in our hearts forever, that we might be your people, that you might be our God, that we might love you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.